Good morning. Great to be with you this morning. Reach for a Bible, would you? We are in a sermon series in the month of June. If you're visiting with us for the first time this morning, a four-week sermon series where we are thinking about the book of Genesis, at least the first chapter of the book of Genesis, and the doctrine of creation. God is the creator and this creation that he's made. It's under the banner, as you can see from the slides over my shoulder, mere creation. And so we're going to be back in Genesis chapter 1 this morning. I invite you to turn there in your Bible, and it's been encouraging to me uh, to get some feedback from y'all. It sounds like the sermon series is resonating with you, which is very encouraging to me personally. I know this can be, this kind of a topic, Doctrine of Creation in Genesis, can be a ticklish and a delicate topic, and so it's encouraging for us to be able to grapple with it together as a family of faith and the body of Christ here over these last couple of weeks, so very thankful for that. Hey, I should point out, by the way, that you, you were treated to a visual delight this morning on the screens. Did you see those, those pictures in the, in the, the lyrics, the song lyrics? Uh, one of our congregants, our very own Bill Suriano, is an amateur astronomer who took all the pictures this morning on the slides you may have seen, so that was pretty cool. He passed those along to us, and we thought, well, we're going to use those as our, our backdrop for our lyrics slides this morning. Also, I want to mention this morning, before we dive into the message, some of you have been asking for resources, right, on, on creation and how to think about it and all the rest of it. And so I have this morning just two things by way of resource. One is a book. The other is an event. And so first, the book. The book I want to commend to you is called, it's published by Zondervan. It's called Dictionary of Christianity and Science. It just came out. Full disclosure, I've written an endorsement for this, but when I write endorsements for books, they never get on the back. It's tucked into the middle, like somewhere here on the front page. But anyways, I've gone on record in endorsing this book, so this really is a fantastic book. If you have questions about creation or Darwinism or multiverse or string theory or Max Planck or the age of the earth or fossil records or any of these kinds of things... You'll find article entries in here written by leading evangelical scholars on all sorts of topics. I think over 400 different topics touched on in this book. And one of the things that I really like about this book, they, did, they worked really hard to have people that have, you know, on any given topic, let's say the age of the earth, right? There, there'll be different perspectives on that within evangelical Christianity. And they did a good job of getting people that represent the different perspectives to write the article from their perspective. And so you can see those, those kind of counterpoints laid side by side under each of the entries that touches on a t delicate, tricky issue. So let me commend this to you, the Dictionary of Christianity and Science. You can see it's a big book. It's probably a little bit of a pricey book, but pick that up. I think you'll enjoy that. And I'm going to set that down because that is going to knock the podium over if I'm not careful. The second resource is an event that's happening this Saturday in just less than a week's time. Take a look at your worship bulletin or your, your, your worship guide and look on the back. You'll see there on the left-hand side the Mere Creation Workshop that's coming this Saturday. We're going to be gathering from, noon to, from 9 to noon on Saturday morning, child care provided, so should be a good occasion. Bring the kids, have them be in child care, and gather with us at 9 o'clock this upcoming Saturday, where we're going to be having a dialogue on faith and science 
Some of the pastors, some of our own pastors are going to be dialoguing and talking about their perspectives on faith and science. I'll be there. Pastor Gerald will be there. Pastor Joey will be there. So that'll be fun. We're also going to have this organization that does a lot of work facilitating conversations around delicate, tricky issues. The organization called the Colossian Forum, where they really specialize in helping Christians and churches talk about difficult issues in a way that doesn't create dissension but builds unity. And so come next Saturday from 9 to noon in the dining room where we're going to have a mere creation workshop. Should be a great time. You may have lots of questions you want to ask or dialogue further. It should be a great time together. So that's next Saturday from 9 to noon. Okay. Yeah, Genesis 1. You got your Bible open to Genesis chapter 1. Let me invite you to stand and let me read the whole of this chapter. And I do this so we get the whole lay of the land this morning. Because throughout the sermon, I'm going to be making observations about specific things in the text, and it would be good to just have the whole lay of the land of chapter 1 in front of us this morning as we begin. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is, is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights, let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw 
that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I mean, fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and Every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. Seated. Well, surely one of the clearest things in the opening chapter of the book of Genesis, the chapter I've just read for us, is this theme of the goodness of creation. That is our sermon title this morning, The Goodness of Creation. And it would be very hard to read Genesis chapter 1 and not see that as a clear and consistent theme, an opening refrain in the, chap the first chapter of the book of Genesis. Look there in your Bible, you see it again and again and again. God saw that it was good, all the things that he had made. In fact, the phrase is repeated, you'll want to know, six times in this opening chapter, clearly the author emphasizing the goodness of creation. You see the reference there in day, on day one in verse four, if you look in your Bible, on day one. You see it again on day three in verses 10 and 12. You see it on day four in verse 18. You see it in verse 21 on day five. And you see it on day six in verse 25, if you look there. And then a second time, very significantly, on day six, after the creation of humanity, with the addition, you see there in verse 31, of that very important modifier, very. It's not just good, it's very good when everything has been created. Clearly, right? Clearly, one of the main themes of Genesis chapter 1 is the goodness of creation. And yet, this seems, in my judgment, like one of the most difficult things to affirm about creation. The Bible clearly teaches it, and yet many of us have a hard time, I think, affirming the goodness of creation. Why do I say that? Do I say that because of 
all of the natural disasters like hurricanes and tornadoes and tsunamis and earthquakes that can be so devastating, these, these not good things in the natural order, in the created order. That's not primarily why I'm saying this, though, of course, that is true. You've got all of these natural disasters which call into question seemingly the goodness of creation. But that's not why I'm really, pre- that's not what I'm pressing on this morning. What I want to press on this morning, and you perhaps have thought about this, is not the natural disasters that call into question the goodness of creation, but listen, the normal workings of nature which seem to call into question the goodness of creation. So when you look closely at the creation, what is it that you actually see? So much of it can appear ambiguous, right? Not not obviously good, ambiguous. And frankly, so much of it can appear less than good. Even harsh, cruel, indifferent. And so perhaps you're going to take a walk this afternoon down your sidewalk in your neighborhood or through a park, and no doubt on a day like today might be a little muggy and you might be a little sweaty, but it's going to be lovely, I'm sure. You're going to enjoy and and revel in the beauty of God's creation, and it will be very easy as you're looking around the sunshine to say, boy, this creation is good. And yet what happens if you pause for a moment and peer a little bit under the surface of the beauty of creation and take a look, you might say, at what's really going on in the details of the natural workings of nature itself? What you notice is that it is a world that seems to be at war. You ever viewed it that way? where everything seems to be eating everything. Where life depends, check it out, on consuming someone else's life. So you're strolling through the park and you're like, that's lovely grass. Well, that poor grass just wants to be grass, but it keeps getting consumed by other creatures. We call those things little bugs. And the little bugs are at the same time somewhere not very far off going to be consumed by other bigger bugs. And those bigger bugs that are consuming smaller bugs that are consuming that lovely grass that we're walking in or admiring, they're going to pretty soon, sometime today or tomorrow, be eaten by birds. I know, I know. That's how I feel. From the mouth of infants and babes, right? And then those poor birds, I mean, there's a lot of cats in Oak Park, and they, they, they chase these birds. And, and so this world is, seems to be, this natural world, the natural working of the created order seems to be at war. It's like life depends upon consuming life, and not just in Oak Park, but everywhere. The famous British poet laureate, Alfred Lord Tennyson, wrote a very famous poem where he reflected on this, and he used a very famous line that often gets quoted. He talks about how nature is red in tooth and claw, red in tooth and in claw. 
I remember several months ago leaving very early from our house, leaving very early in the morning, and our cat, we have two cats, and a neighbor once said, you know, do you have, you know, you've got coyotes in your yard. I said, no, those are just our cats that go out at night, right? They mistook our, mistook our cats for coyotes. These are the kind of cats we have. They're great cats. One is London. The other is Normandy. Well, I went outside very early one morning, and our big black cat, London, was out there. And I, and I looked over here, and there he was. I mean, just this beautiful, massive black cat. He's sitting there, and it's like 5.30 in the morning. He's sitting there, and I notice there's a mouse in front of him. Not hanging from his mouth, but like in front of him, what is he doing? He is just playing with that mouse. Rather, he is toying with that mouse. Nature red in tooth and claw. Like, what do, what's, what, do, what do you make of that, right? I mean, like, that this cat that is beautiful and in many ways, like, glorious to behold, it seems to have these, these teeth and these claws and this instinct designed to chase mice and eat and kill them. Like, how do we ascribe goodness to that, right? Or I remember in college seeing a striking picture on the office door of one of my professors. It was uh, one of those National Geographic-type pictures, right, where, where it is this gazelle that's like making the sharp left-hand turn. It's kind of, its back, back end is sort of like kicking out behind it with this dust cloud going up, and there is a cheetah that is lunging for this gazelle. And it was this picture, this National Geographic like picture on my professor's door. And on the picture, he had placed this Hebrew expression that we find in Genesis chapter 1, Yavar Elohim Kitov. And God saw that it was good. Provocative. <laughs> Very provocative. And so some in our day and age have referred to this issue as they look at the natural workings of creation, not as the problem of evil, that's not, not the problem of evil, but rather the problem of goodness. The question being for those of us living in the 21st century as we look at all these things, not how do we explain the presence of evil in the world, but Rather, where do we find any goodness in the world? In this red in tooth and claw consuming life for more life world in which we live. Or to put it this way, what does it mean to say creation is good as Genesis does? Now, I recognize that Listen, not every Christian struggles with the issue as I've just framed it up for us this morning. For some of you, this is not a problem for you, right? And, and it's not a problem for you because you ascribe or you attribute all of the cruelty of nature, both human death and animal death, all biological suffering and death, from the, the bending and dying of a blade of grass or a leaf on a tree to a cat chasing with so on and so forth. You ascribe all of that to the fall. In Genesis chapter 3, that has been the classic Christian approach to this question going all the way back to Augustine in the 4th century, and it may well be the right and the best approach to this question and this issue. It certainly solves the problem I'm articulating. You talk about the fall introducing all of the seeming cruelty or real cruelty 
into the world. And, and some of you, I know, hold that view. It's a very valid, classic Christian view. And so this morning, I want to say that if you are someone who holds that view, what is known as young earth creationism, if you're a confident young earth creationist, then I want to just recognize that this issue I've set up is not a huge dilemma for you. This isn't your issue, but I want to say there are many in the congregation this morning who aren't young earth creationists, and yet you need to make sense of the Bible's teaching about the goodness of creation. And so I have you primarily in mind this morning in this message. You have a dilemma on your hands. And in particular, I have three types of folks in mind I want to talk to specifically. The first is what I'll call the confused biology student. The second I'll call the conflicted nature lover. And the third, I'll call the convinced evolutionist. Okay? The first, the confused biology student. That might be you. You might be in your sophomore or junior year in high school biology, or you just finished your freshman or sophomore year in college, you took biology, and you learned about all the mechanisms that almost all scientists think drives forward all of the biological diversity on planet Earth. Natural selection is sometimes what it's called in popular culture, the survival of the fittest. And you have learned from the scientists that this is not just a feature of creation. This seems to be the engine driving biological complexity ever on earth, and it leaves you, as a professing Christian, confused. <laughs> you are a confused biology student. You might be, though, a concerned, na a conflicted nature lover, right? So this is the, the person who loves nature, its beauty, its elegance, its grandeur. You see the glory of God reflected in nature. It's not very hard for you to see that you find your spirits being lifted when you take a walk in the park or, or go for a hike or sit by a lake or admire a sunset, and yet it bothers you that cats chase mice or that lions eat seemingly so mercilessly gazelles. It bothers you. Or that parasites have no other purpose but, well, to be parasitic. You love nature, but you recognize there is an astonishing amount of bloodshed in the natural world, in God's good creation. And so you are a conflicted lover of nature. Third type of person I'm really speaking to this morning is the convinced evolutionist. And you may be a Christian, right, as, as a convinced evolutionist, and you're trying to figure out how to reconcile the, the science that seems compelling to you on the one hand with your Christian faith that seems at least as compelling to you on the other hand. You're trying to figure out, how does this work? And you know that the goodness of creation is a theme in Genesis, but you're not, you're not entirely sure how those things connect. You may be a Christian and a convinced evolutionist. You're not sure how to put this stuff together. You may not be a Christian this morning. And evolution is one of the things that keeps you or one of the big blocks in your path to maybe becoming a Christian. I know that experience. That's where I was when I was 16. 
That was my main objection to the Christian faith when someone first shared Christianity with me. I had one response, which is, what about evolution, right? I didn't know anything about Christianity, and I didn't really know anything about evolution. I just knew evolution defeated Christianity. You might be in that position this morning. You may not be a Christian. You may be a Christian either way. Here's the deal. You are perhaps struggling with the teaching of the Bible and how it could possibly be true, the goodness of creation. In light of an evolutionary account of the world, how does Genesis 1 could it possibly be true in light of everything the scientists seem to be telling us about how this world came about? And so you're wrestling with it. And you don't want to just say that the Bible speaks fairy tales, right? It's just got rose-colored glasses on and so says the creation is good, but isn't that quaint and isn't that charming? We just know it's not true. You know, this idea of nature read in tooth and claw, this was Darwin's struggle, you know. Did you realize that? Darwin himself struggled with cruel nature, right? His deep, deep reflections on the nature of nature ended up in the long run tragically eroding his confidence in the goodness of creation and then in the very viability of Christian faith and ultimately theism itself. And so as he famously wrote to one of his friends these words, quote, listen to this, listen to this. What a book a devil's chaplain might write on the clumsy, wasteful, blundering, low, and horribly cruel works of nature, he says. He was bothered in particular by a particular kind of parasitic wasp, right? It's got this big, fancy, kind of Latin-derived name that I won't try to pronounce, but Darwin found this very troubling, this wasp that he, he knew and studied closely, a fascinating little creature, parasitic wasp, because it lays its eggs on other organisms and, and uses the life of the other organism to bring forth its own life in its own offspring, so to speak. So it doesn't lay its eggs in a hole in the ground or on a tree on some bark, Rather, this particular kind of wasp that really bothered him laid its eggs inside caterpillars. And then when those eggs hatched, what those eggs do in order to have life is they consume the life of the caterpillar that they are now embedded inside of. And this really was jarring to Darwin. You see this? You get a feel for this? Nature red in tooth and claw. And so what sense does it make then to talk about the goodness of creation, to affirm that what the Bible teaches about the goodness of creation is really true? How can it be true? Let me offer this morning five brief affirmations of what it means to say creation is good, the goodness of creation. Or what does it mean when we read that and God saw that it was good? Here are the five affirmations. Let me give them to you up front so you can hear them, perhaps take them down, and then we'll go through them expeditiously one by one. Here's the first. What it means to say creation is good is this. It means that it is reflective of God, reflective of God. Two, it's conducive to life. Three, it is suffused with purpose suffused with purpose or full of purpose. Four, enriched 
by beauty, enriched by beauty, and five, clarified in Christ. When we say creation is good, that means it is clarified in Christ. First, creation is good in that creation is reflective of God. That is, creation reflects or reveals God. It reveals His nature, but it also reveals His character, His goodness. You see, we need to remember as we read Genesis chapter 1 that everything from verse 2 and following, in particular the creation of the created world in which we find ourselves, all depends, look in your Bible, on verse 1 of chapter 1. In other words, the created order depends upon the creator who's referred to in chapter 1, verse 1, namely God himself. Creation ultimately reveals God. It is reflective of of God. And so, what we want to say as Christians and mere creation is this, that creation is good because God is good. Even though creation isn't God, it's still good. It's distinct from God. We're not pantheists or panantheists, rather. We believe in a distinct creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creation is distinct from God, but creation reflects the nature and the character of God. God is so gifted creation that it reflects not only his power, right, his, his nature, his power, his strength, his wisdom. You might say all of his natural attributes as this awesome, huge, powerful, wise, smart designer and creator. It reflects all of that, right? That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. But it also, listen, and more importantly, it reflects the goodness of God, his character, his kindness, his generosity, his his graciousness, his love. Made this point last week, or excuse me, two weeks ago, that creation is a gift, not a given. Yes, we see God's power and God as a genius architect and maker of creation. He's like really smart and really powerful, but is he good? That's the question, right? And, and I think in creation we also see not only God's power and creative intelligence, we also see God's fatherly care, God's kindness to creation. Remember how Jesus talked about this, that the heavenly Father, remember how he puts it, dresses the lilies of the field, that's how nice God is, he gets the lilies of the field dressed for school each morning, right? And that God gets meals ready for all the animals, and as Jesus says, even feeds the birds of the air. I mean, God is incredibly kind to his creation, not just smart and powerful, but generous and merciful and kind. Or as Jesus again put it, he causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. I mean, the natural workings of creation, they are very kind to everyone in the created order. All these interconnected operations in the world around us, they speak to the power of God, yes, and the wisdom of God, but what I'm trying to say is they also speak to the goodness of God. We see his wisdom, but we also see his kindness and his goodness. Creation, listen, this first point, is good because it reflects and it reveals the goodness of God as our loving heavenly Father. The second affirmation is this, 
The first is that it is reflective of God. The second is that it is conducive to life. Creation is good because it is conducive to life. Perhaps the most obvious thing, in addition to the theme of the goodness of creation, Genesis 1, right, as you look in that passage, is the structuring of the chapter around the six days of creation. It's super obvious as you read the Bible, as you read this opening chapter. But listen, if you look closely, you notice that these days aren't just in a linear sequence from day one to day two to day three to day four to day five to day six. There is more going on than simply a serial like kind of lining up of these days of creation. Take a look at the opening chapter of Genesis chapter one. And what I want you to see is the following, how it's carefully arranged these six days in two groups of days. I think it's pretty clear this is the intention of the author. Days one through three on the one hand, days four through six on the other hand. On the first three days of creation, day one, day two, day three, what is God doing? He's creating, let's call it habitats or environments, space and place and time. Day one and day two and day three. What's he doing on days four, five, and six? Well, he's filling the space and the time and the place with inhabitants. Days one through three, habitats or environments or, or, or uh, functions. Days four, five, and six, the inhabitants that live in these environments that God has made. You see that they're day one. He creates day and night. Then on day four, he fills that with heavenly lights. Day two, he creates the sky, right? Then day five matches with that. He fills the sky with birds. And then on the last day, day three, excuse me, not, not least on day three, he creates the land and the seas with vegetation. And then naturally enough, on day six, what does he do? He fills the land and the seas with creatures, with animals and fish, and ultimately, of course, human beings. So you could think of it as forming and then filling. Days one through three, forming. Days four through six, filling. And the forming is good, right, as the text says. The filling is good as well, Right? And then the whole thing, as we see in verse 31, look there, as we see in verse 31, the whole thing is very good, as the Scripture says. But the point in all of that is this, that I think that God has made this created order conducive to life, all biological life, as mentioned in days 4, 5, and 6, Plants and fish and birds and animals and especially humankind, human life is the crown on day six. It is all very conducive to life. Or let me put it this way. This creation we find ourselves in, is not, it's not Mars, it's not Mercury, it's not Venus, it's not Pluto, right? It's not as hot as Mercury, where, by the way, there's evidently no oxygen, no water, and no air. That would be hard to live there. It's also not like Mars, where the temperature and the atmosphere definitely don't work for life. And it's definitely not like Pluto, which I've heard is pretty cold and pretty dark and pretty lonely. 
There's been cool corroborating evidence of, I think, what is the plain teaching of Genesis from scientists and astronomers in particular who talk, you may have heard about this, the anthropic principle, this idea that scientists and cosmologists and astronomers have identified of how finely tuned the universe we find ourselves in is, amazingly finely tuned to like incredible mathematical sort of precision. They talk about the anthropic principle, how this whole galaxy we find ourselves in is conducive to life. So it seems to be not an accident. And I think that's one of the main things we can say from Genesis chapter 1. Creation is good, and that creation is conducive to life. Whether you believe that life arose instantaneously as an instantaneous creation or over a long, slow evolutionary development, either way, this good, this good creation is good because it's conducive to life. That's point number two. Here is point number two. Three, it is suffused with purpose. Creation is good, and that creation is suffused with purpose. Everything in creation, it seems, you go outside and look around, is oriented to goals and to ends and to purposes. Everything seems to be well-working and well-ordered. There seems to be, put it this way, a functional integrity to the creation around us. Nothing seems to be just sitting around doing nothing. Have you noticed that? You never find a pack of wolves sitting in a parking lot just loitering. (laughs) Hey, what are you doing here? I was just hanging out. You never find a flock of geese that are just sitting by a lake just like sunning their feet. You know what I'm saying? They always seem to be busy doing stuff. You never find an army of ants that are just like chilling out playing frisbee. They always seem to be busy. They always seem to be ordered, well-ordered to some purpose, some goal, some end. All of creation seems to have this suffusion with purpose and designedness and pursuing goals and ends that the creation as a whole is going after. Seems obvious from the created world around us. It's pretty interesting, I think, the word tov in Hebrew, which we translate in our English Bibles as good here in Genesis 1, the Hebrew word tov, has a wide range of meanings. But basically at the heart, I think, of what it's doing here in Genesis chapter 1 is saying this, that something is good in that it is good for some purpose. There's a functional integrity to what God has created. God orders the world. He forms it for a purpose, for life, for humanity. And then he says, it's good. It's good for something. There is a purpose that suffuses all of creation. The old adage, everything has a place and everything in its place, that seems to be true of creation. And what God sees that his creation is highly ordered, he can sit back and say that it is good. It is very good. You see what I'm saying here? Creation is good because creation is suffused with purpose. It is suffused with purpose. Perhaps the best way to get the meaning of this word good and and what I'm trying to say, this functional integrity, this purposiveness of the idea of goodness is to see if there is an example of something not being good in the opening couple chapters of Genesis. And of course, we have a very good example and the pun is intended. A good example is the creation of man, and when God says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, check it out there, chapter 2, verse 18, that it is not good, right? It's not good that man should be alone. What is the text saying? That Adam is immoral? 
Adam is not perfect. That's not what the text is saying. What the text is saying, rather, is that it is, Adam is not complete. There is another purpose. There's another design for Adam. It is not good for a particular purpose that Adam should be in isolation, and so the creation of Eve. Creation, what I'm trying to say, is is good because creation is suffused with purpose. Here's the fourth affirmation. Creation is good because creation is enriched by beauty. Do you realize that the world didn't need to be as beautiful as it is? I mean... God is not just left brain, right? God seems to be right brain as well. God is not just an engineer or a skilled watchmaker, right? Who creates order and structure and laws and it's all mechanical and it's all functional and it's all sort of fine and, you know, it's, it's I don't know, I mean, it's just, it's like a, it's like a, it's a finely tuned watch with all the gears. And all. I mean, yes, this is, that is about the creation. I mean, it is amazingly ordered and finely tuned for sure, for sure. But there seems to be this surplus of beauty with the creation that didn't seem to have to be there. And I think we see this theme in the text of Genesis when you notice how God creates, and then you notice what the text says, God creates by the power of his word, and then what does it say next? God saw. (laughs) He's like a painter doing some oil on canvas, and then he steps back and takes a look at what he's just created. And you know what he says? He says, that's good. I mean, that's really good. It could have been more engineering-like, sure. I mean, it could have had no beauty and lots of function, but it's not the world we live in. It is resplendent with beauty, enriched by beauty almost everywhere we look. Think about it. God has created whole galaxies, millions and billions of stars that no one will ever see. There is an artistic wastefulness with God. You see what I'm saying? Like the artist in a studio who just paints all sorts of oil on canvases, not because he needs to sell them at the art gallery or show them at the art gallery, just because he likes the beauty of it. That's God. There are all kinds of creatures that no one has ever seen. And I love when we drop these submarines down into super deep depths or we go into these caves where no one's ever been before, like it shows up in National Geographic. And yet they, they get these pictures of these little weird sea creatures no one's ever seen before. I mean, have you ever seen those things? A kind of artistic wastefulness. God just, I love the way the Bible puts it, God created Leviathan. You know why God created that big sea creature? Probably whales. But you know why God created Leviathan? Just so it could sport in the ocean. <laughs> You ever seen a whale go, and the water flies everywhere? What's going on there? God just loves that kind of stuff. The beauty of creation. Creation is good in that creation is enriched with beauty to be seen and enjoyed by creatures like you and me. It is enriched by beauty. Fifthly and finally, how are we doing? You all right? Give me, a, give, me a, give me a nod. You still with me? Fifthly and finally, most importantly, most importantly, 
What it means to say creation is good is to say this, that it is clarified in Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who makes sense of creation. Not the scientists, but Jesus. Why do I say that? Because the Bible says this, Jesus Christ is the one in whom and through whom and for whom all things exist. John chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. A riff on Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the center and the key to creation. Or Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Paul writes this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. What does all that mean? It means you cannot understand creation rightly without understanding Christ. He is the key to understanding the world rightly. In particular, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The story of Jesus, the gospel, makes sense of the goodness of creation. What do I mean by that? I mean this. Listen, in Jesus' incarnation, the Son, God, embraces and endorses the <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> the fundamental goodness of creation by taking on human flesh god the son embraces and endorses the goodness of creation you can't believe in the incarnation and not believe in the goodness of creation but so too in jesus's death we're reminded that there is something deeply broken with us and with creation. The cross of Christ, the death of God incarnate, reminds us that creation, yes, because the incarnation is fundamentally good. You see the storyline. But on the cross, we now see that the creation is, yes, fundamentally good, but deeply broken at the same time, damaged by sin. And so Paul puts it this way. The creation has itself, in Romans 8, been subject to futility, and it now groans in eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God. And yet, also, in Jesus' resurrection, did you think about this? Jesus' resurrection reminds us that there is a goodness to creation that we have not yet experienced. And so to say that we believe in the goodness of creation, listen to me, is to affirm what we see with our eyes, the purpose of creation, the designedness of creation, the beauty of creation, the creation we know is, a, is from God created by, is to affirm what we see with our eyes, its purpose and order and beauty. But listen, it is also to speak with the voice 
of faith. To express hope in what we cannot see with our eyes, but which we can only embrace by faith. And so Hebrews chapter 1 puts it this way, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Listen to me, one of the things that we hope for and one of the things that we cannot yet see is what the Bible calls the new creation, a second creation that's going to be a lot like this creation, only entirely renewed and completely perfected where there's going to be no more sickness, no more dying, no more death. There's not going to be sun because Jesus is going to be its light. The lion is going to lie down with the lamb and all of the rest of it. We anticipate that by faith and by hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. So you see creation clarified in Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. <clears throat> Many of you, of course, will um, <clears throat> remember, can easily think back to 2004 when there was that, you remember that, the, the deadly tsunami that kind of erupted in the Indian Ocean and just wrecked havoc uh, uh, on, in, the, uh, in the Orient, in the East, and, and scientists talk about, I mean, something staggering, staggering about in terms of the energy and the power that was released with that tsunami. They talk about something like 23,000 Hiroshima-type atomic bombs going off with that tsunami and all of the devastation that it wrecked in the world. Over 150,000 people, you may remember, or either went missing or lost their lives. Massive, massive, massive devastation. Left many, uh, many of us asking serious questions about God and, and yes, the goodness of creation. A theologian by the name of David Bentley Hart wrote a powerful little thought piece in the New York Times shortly after the tsunami where he tried to explain how Christians might sort of come to terms with a tsunami, a natural disaster of this scope and magnitude, and at the same time, Genesis chapter 1 and the goodness of creation and ultimately the goodness of God. And what he talks about in that article that was written up later as a book called Doors of the Sea, the book is entitled Doors of the Sea, is, is this, how the Christian affirms the goodness of creation, not because we wear rose-colored glasses and call things good that aren't really good. Rather, he says, and I think he's exactly right, that we affirm the goodness of creation in Christ as it, what he calls a moral and spiritual labor, an act of faith, a work of love, a hope ultimately in the goodness of God. And so listen to David Bentley Hart as he writes in his book, Doors of the Sea, about the goodness of creation in light of what doesn't seem to be all that good in this creation that we find ourselves in. He writes this. The Christian vision of the world is not some rational deduction from empirical experience. Rather, it is a moral and spiritual aptitude. Rather, a moral and spiritual labor. The Christian eye sees or should see a deeper truth in the world than mere nature. And it is a truth that gives rise not to optimism, but to joy. 
And so David Bentley Hart goes on like this. Listen to this. The Christian should see two realities at once. One world, as it were, within another world. One, the world as we all know it, in all its beauty and terror, its grandeur and dreariness, delight and anguish. And the other world, in its first and ultimate truth, not simply nature, but creation. An endless sea of glory, radiant with the beauty of God in every part, innocent of all violence. To see in this way, he says, is to rejoice and to mourn at once. To regard the world as a mirror of infinite beauty, but is glimpsed through the veil of death. It is to see creation in chains, but beautiful as in the beginning of days. Friends, <clears throat> friends I think that's exactly, exactly right. Christ is the key to creation. Christ is the one who ultimately clarifies what it means to say creation is good. So it is a truth we affirm it's a belief we hold. It's a hope we hold on to. It's a truth we affirm even when it doesn't make all that much sense. It's a belief we hold even when there's <clears throat> seemingly strong evidence to the contrary. And it's a hope we hold on to even when nature itself looks cruel and harsh and indifferent. As David Bentley Hart says, the Christian eye sees or should see a deeper truth in the world than mere nature. And it is a truth that gives rise not to optimism, but to the joy of faith. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that all the riches of wisdom and knowledge and discernment are found in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at nature that we confess and admit is red in tooth and claw, we acknowledge that Jesus clarifies the meaning of all of these things. And so we want all glory to go to Christ this morning as we're going to sing in just a moment. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. May Jesus' will be done and His kingdom come on earth as is above. Jesus, our daily bread, praise Him. We want to praise Him, the Lord of love. All glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. Amen.